O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Open our eyes to behold marvelous things from out of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Do keep your Bibles uh, open as we as we go through the passage today. Uh, check that what I'm saying is actually there in Scripture. And um, yeah, well, it was in the year uh, 1271 that uh, Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, was the ruler of the greatest empire that has ever been known, which he ruled from his capital, Xanadu. Uh, it stretched from the Ural Mountains to the, to the Himalayas, from the South China Sea all the way across to the, the Danube River in Europe, and it covered about 20% of the world's entire land area. And in that year of 1271, Kublai Khan sent a letter to Pope Gregory X. He wrote, you shall send me a hundred men skilled in your religion, and so I shall be baptized. All my barons and great men shall be baptized, and then their subjects will receive baptism, and so there will be more Christians in my parts here than there are in your parts. And this letter was entrusted to uh, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo, uh, better known as, as Marco Polo. Uh, Marco Polo carried that letter all the way back to, to Italy and uh, handed over to Pope Gregory this amazing plea for people to come and teach the Christian religion. And the result of this plea was Pope Gregory did absolutely nothing. Not for 18 years were any missionaries sent, and by then it was too few and too late for the entire situation had changed. The church of that time had forgotten its primary task, its essential purpose to glorify God by reaching out to others in the name of Jesus. And Dr. Luke uh, wrote this book. He was the only uh, Gentile writer to contribute to the uh, New Testament. He was a Greek, he was a, a well-educated man, and it's always amazed me that God chose a scientist of his day uh, to write this book about the historical and the supernatural. And uh, I don't know what your Bible actually uh, calls this book. Um, often it's called the, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but there are 13 apostles in all, and only two apostles actually say anything in this book. It's only Peter and, and Paul. Only two other apostles are mentioned in any action, and that's James and John. Yet the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 40 times in the first 12 chapters up to the, the, the start of, of our reading today. So it seems strange to give a book a title that emphasizes human action when there's so much about the Holy Spirit in it. And in a way, we could say the Old Testament is about the acts of the Father. The, the four Gospels are about the acts of the Son. And, and this book we could call the acts of the Holy Spirit. 
But if we gave this book that title, we might be going too far because we would overlook the way in which the Holy Spirit works through human beings, through people like you and like me, the chief characters through which the God, uh, God grows his church. And the Gospels record the acts of, of Jesus in his physical body and acts records the acts of Jesus in his spiritual body, the church. And the main reason that Luke had for writing this book was to encourage the church in the purpose that God had given it. And he wrote to show that the God-given essential purpose and task of the church is mission, is to reach out in the name of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we follow the Lord who said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We are called to God's mission by both living out and saying the good news. And here is the start of Paul's first missionary journey. And there are four things that I want to draw out of this rather long reading this morning. A remarkable church, uh, reaching out, uh, resistance met, and then reporting back. So if we look at the first few verses of chapter 13, uh, we're looking at a church in, in a city, and the city is, is Antioch. It's the capital of the province of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a huge, it was a busy, it was a bustling city. It was a, a very diverse city, many cultures represented. It was not unlike Singapore in many ways, a crossroads of, of the, the Middle East. And it's, it was here that the, the ones who followed the way, the followers of Jesus, were first given the nickname Christians because that's what they talked about all the time. Christ, Christ, you must be Christians. And the leaders of the church were a very diverse group. There was uh, Barnabas, as mentioned there, from the island of Cyprus in, uh, in the European part of the Mediterranean. Simeon, uh, a Jew, and he was called Niger, which means black in Latin. It could mean that he was, he was dark-colored, or, or maybe even he was from a part of Africa and, and was a Jewish proselyte. He had decided to follow the Jewish religion. There was Lucius, who came from Cyrene in uh, modern Libya. There was Mane from the royal household of the Seleucids. This was a mixture of Jewish and Arabic race kings who had come to power through the, the Greek leader, Alexander the Great. And then there was Paul from Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. So these leaders came from Asia, from Africa, and from Europe. They probably spoke each more than one language, almost certainly they did, in order to be able to have a, a common language they could communicate in. They had a very wide range of social status, from a member of the royal household to a landowner to an artisan, and some about whom we have no information at all. In the church, there were a wide range of cultures and of different social statuses. This was not a club for socializing. It was a community of the rescued. One of, um, one of our workers um, was a member of the, the Burmese resistance. He uh, supported Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar. 
Um, he believed that the only way to get the, the, the junta to, uh, to change their minds about things was to take up arms. Um, uh, a warrant was issued for his arrest. He fled over the border, an angry and violent man. He was uh, picked up by the police in Thailand as an illegal immigrant. And he ended up in jail in Thailand sharing a cell with a member of the Afghan Taliban. But this member of the Afghan Taliban had come to faith in Isa al-Masih, in Jesus the Messiah. And this Afghani member of the Taliban led this Burmese revolutionary to faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing to bind them together apart from their common faith in Jesus. And together they worship Jesus in that cell in Thailand. Not a club for socializing, but a community of the rescued. The church was remarkable in Antioch for its diversity. And Luke, he goes into quite some detail about the names that, of the people that were in the church. But we're not told in detail about what each of them was doing. The ministries were not attached to any one person. And perhaps this is a hint that our belonging to God's people is more important than our position among God's people. And when it comes to deciding what to do, they, they seem to, to work together, leaders and people, in, in, in verse 2 there. I, I wonder what you think of, of what, what the word they means, who it refers to. It might seem that they is the leadership, but it would seem odd that the Spirit would speak to, to three of the leaders about two of the leaders. It seems much more likely that the, the will of the Spirit was revealed to the whole group, the whole church, while they were gathered together. Not just the leadership. And these people that were sent out eventually reported back to the whole church as there was a sense in which the whole church was behind them. So the church was remarkable for its diversity, but it was also remarkable for the way that it worked together for its unity. And it was a church that took the word of God and the worship of God seriously. Now this is not a sleepy little village somewhere. This is not a rural community. This is not a place where the days were long and people looked for things to fill the days. This was a busy city. This was a church in a, in a, in a, in a place where people were out to make money, were out to get ahead, were out to make their mark. It was full of hard-working people. And many of those hard-working people were in the church, but they still took worship, prayer, and fasting seriously. This was a church that was remarkable for worship and for prayer. The Holy Spirit calls, in verse 2, and the leaders of the church set apart God's work of, of calling was, was, was perceived in human hearts and minds. And the human work of, of, of choosing, of selecting, is done with prayer to God and fasting. In verse 3, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the church is acting in a human capacity, sending people off. But look at verse 4. The two of them 
sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So who did the sending? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it a human initiative? Or was it Holy Spirit and church working together? God was taking up the human into his purposes by calling and the human was was doing what they needed to do and also relying on God in prayer and fasting. This wonderful sense of partnership between God and his church. Not long ago, Anna and I were uh, in a in a meeting, a very difficult meeting, involved the senior leadership of uh, the organization that we work for, and um, we're coming face to face with a, a member of the organization who had come with a lawyer and was uh, keen to uh, to bring us to account and to bring us to court, and she had a long and interesting history of um, of difficult and divisive behavior. And as we probed a little bit, as we went into the background of, of, of all that had uh, gone on for us to arrive at, at such a broken and difficult place, um, we heard from her, her sending church, they wrote to us and they apologized to us. They said to us, she was so difficult and so divisive that we didn't know what to do with her. So we decided to send her off as a missionary. <laughs> and get rid of her. And we were so grateful to them for doing that. (laughs) Got a difficult person, got a divisive person, send them out to the mission field. That is not the approach that the church at Antioch took. Here was the young church in Antioch, recently planted, much growth, many needs. But the church sends out two of its best leaders sends out two of those who were involved in bringing about that growth. Send out the best. Send out the ones you can't live without rather than the ones you can live without. And it's very interesting as as we listen to the stories of of new missionaries who are coming to join us at, at OMF and they all come through Singapore. They spend three and a half weeks here in an orientation course and we have the privilege of listening to their stories listening to the way that God has led them. But many Asian colleagues tell us that it was their believing, their Christian parents, that were sometimes the biggest obstacle to them going. Often we find that Asian churches can be very generous towards those who are sent out in in, in cross-cultural service. And often there's a sense of relief, I'll pay for that person to go as long as my son or daughter doesn't have to go. I'll support them. But as David Livingston, the great African explorer and cross-cultural worker said, God had only one son and he sent him as a missionary. Some, it's clear from this passage, were chosen to stay and to continue the work of the church in Antioch. The church had to remain there in order to send and continue to grow. Some were chosen to go It was a church that was remarkable for its unity, for its diversity, for its prayer and worship. But it was also a church that was remarkable for its obedience, even when it hurt. Then reaching cross-culturally. Well, what happened then when this, this church worshipped, fasted and prayed? Of course, 
Mission begins with worship. As we, as we learn to love and to worship the Lord of heaven and earth, the more that we realize who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he plans to do, the more we want others to join us. And up until this point, the church had hardly grown beyond the, the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. It remained a church that was actually in some ways just a, a Jewish sect. It was Jews that had discovered Jesus the Messiah. But after sessions of worship, fasting and prayer, a mission movement began in this one church which saw Christianity become the dominant religion of the, of the wider Roman world within 250 years. 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were a result of the worship, prayer and fasting by this one church. And if you look at verse 25 of, of chapter 12, when Barnabas and Saul, it says, had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. And up until this point, Jerusalem had been the center of the church, which was largely among the Jews. If we read on from this point, Jerusalem is not mentioned again until the Council of Jerusalem, and then only briefly, as the Gospel leaps over a cultural boundary, a cultural barrier, from being an almost exclusively Jewish religion to being a, 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 a faith that was impacting Gentiles across the world. And it's remarkable how so often we see the gospel crossing boundaries, crossing barriers, going into new areas, just as it, it is fades and is lost behind it. Andrew Walls, one of the uh, great thinkers of, of uh, the missionary movement of the 20th century, he talks about the weakness of the cross. He talks about how the fact that unlike Islam or other religions where they've moved into an area and then they've stayed and they've held the area, that because people can choose, the gospel can, can, can wane, can diminish, as well as growing strong. And within 30 years of this event, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans, the Jews would be scattered, and if it remained only a Jewish religion, there would have been serious consequences. But because of the, the prayer, the fasting, the worship, and the obedience of this church, a change came about by God's grace that has resulted in us being here and gathering as God's people in Singapore today. Mission began with worship. And people were sent by the Spirit. The church was involved in sending them. If only some go to cross a culture with the good news of Jesus, does that mean that the rest of us have nothing to do with mission? And of course the answer is no. We are all part of God's plan for the world. We share and live out the good news in our, in our club, in our workplace, in our school, at home. But some of us are specifically called to learn other languages and cultures, to travel, to bring the gospel. And I like this definition of a missionary, being a Christian who has exactly the same faith, testimony and responsibilities as all other Christians, 
but who exercises these in a cross-cultural situation, in a culture which is not their own. A missionary as a Christian has exactly the same faith, testimony and responsibilities as all other Christians, but who exercises these in a cross-cultural situation. Those who don't go can pray. Do you know who missionaries are? Do you read the emails or the letters or their blogs? Do you write and ask them what answers there have been? We can be involved in cross-cultural mission through sending, through providing funds, through providing a home when people return, lending furniture, taking a family shopping when they come back. One of the great delights for uh, for Anna was to go back to the UK and a, and, a, and a good friend from her church taking her out shopping to buy clothes when they, they got back. We can welcome. There are 160,000 domestic workers here in Singapore, 66,000 university students, 400,000 others working in, in industry and on building sites from Indonesia, from India, from Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, from the Philippines, from Thailand. Do we know any? Can we welcome any? We play our part in local mission and we play our part in global mission. And Paul goes on from, uh, from Seleucia, sails to Cyprus. They travel across the island. They come to Paphos. There's this... Um, Amazing man who was uh, in charge of the island, Sergius Paulus. He was an intelligent man. And the implication that, that Luke wants us to, to hear is that he sent for Paul and Barnabas because he was an intelligent man. And so he wanted to hear the word of God. And uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, share the word of God with him. And there's this, this challenge to Elymas who is trying to stop Sergius Paulus, hear clearly what God has to say to him. And uh, Paul speaks these powerful words and Elymas is, is blinded. And verse 12 is amazing. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed. What, before, because he saw someone struck blind? No, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And they go on to city and Antioch together and uh, Paul preaches this amazing sermon to a very surprised Jewish congregation in, uh, in a, what is a, a town which is also confusingly called Antioch, the city in Antioch. And uh, he tells a very surprised congregation about their history he tells them that they were called to be the light of the world. He tells them that they have failed to be the light of the world. Always guaranteed to win friends and influence people when you tell them their failures. He tells them how God had kept his promises despite their failure and how he had chosen a true Jew from among them. And Paul goes on to show from the scriptures how Jesus came to die, to rise, to justify, to show God's grace. And Paul was just amazing. He was asked at the spur of the moment to preach and he stood up and he spoke. He was biblically literate. He really knew the scriptures. And that's something that we need to encourage within the church. Do we know our Bibles? Do we know 
uh, what God has to say, the whole picture of what God has to say. And Paul and Barnabas, as we read on, they were willing to go anywhere. They were willing to be in the offices of the top leadership and they were willing to be among the poorest of beggars. Our team in, uh, in Cambodia was a very diverse team. We had uh, 17 different mother tongues on the team, so people from many, many different countries. Um, most of us could speak English of, of some form or other, so that really helped when we got together as a team. Um, and it was amazing, the, the range of things that was going on. What One of the... Uh, the team was is teaching English to a government minister in Cambodia and taking the opportunity to share his faith even as he helps that minister come to terms with the English language. There are other team members who are working amongst the poorest of the poor and Stung Mian Jay, one of the, the biggest rubbish dumps in, in Asia in the centre of, of, of Phnom Penh. There's so many different ways for us to, to be involved. And God, we find nowadays, in order to get into countries where we can't otherwise go, is, is calling water engineers, marine biologists, IT people, teachers, nurses, carpenters, those with interior design skills, children's workers, all kinds of skills and abilities and gifts. And Paul and Barnabas were willing to go to Jews, to God-fearing Gentiles and to pagans. They did not discriminate with the eyes of God. They saw everyone's need. And as we read on about this amazing first missionary journey, the word was so powerful, so attractive for many that, that people gathered to hear. And the people didn't just gather to hear, but they saw their acts of kindness, their acts of healing, of teaching, of performing miracles, of living blameless lives, and that opened people's hearts to hear what they had to say. Though people need to hear the exact precision of the word of God to believe in Christ, deeds often open hearts to hear words. Are we willing to go to anyone and serve in any way? Then resistance met. And Paul and Barnabas, they had this uh, amazing message. They went out and they said, you know what? You can be reconciled to God. You can find forgiveness. You can find peace. Jesus has overcome the power of death. You don't need to live your lives under the shadow of the fear of death. God's future for his people is a new life that starts now and goes on into a new age when the whole of creation will be renewed. When things will finally be as they're meant to be. And you can be part of that. And God has made a way for that. It sounds so good. And of course, everywhere they went, people welcomed them and looked after them, accepted their message, treated them with kindness and with respect for this great message that they were bringing. No, that's not what it says. On this one short missionary journey of about two years, they endured opposition from a, uh, from a powerful sorcerer and false prophet. They endured abusive talk and lies spread about them. They endured damaged reputations. They were expelled from cities. They experienced physical threats 
There were great misunderstandings about their message. There was attempted murder. There was grievous actual bodily harm. And as we look through all the ways that Paul and, and, and Barnabas suffered, where did this opposition come from? Who were the people that were trying to get them? Where, was it the, the triad leaders? Was it organized crime bosses? Was it drug addicts? Was it prostitutes? If you look at verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 45, and then verse 50, and then go on to 14, chapter 2. It was the so-called godly people that were filled with jealousy. It was the respectable people, the honorable people, the people that other people looked up to. They were filled with jealousy. The respectable revolted against a work of God. The good people, or the people that thought they were good, rejected the gospel because their power, their control, their peaceful lives were threatened and undermined by what Paul and Barnabas were saying. And C.S. Lewis, the, the great Christian teacher and writer, once described Jesus as the transcendental interferer. Jesus tells us his truth because he loves us. And for that same reason, he invades our sin-blinded minds, our hardened hearts and consciences in order to change us. He loves us, but his invasion can be unsettling for us. In the same way, those that bring the message of Jesus into a new culture are often seen as invaders, as interferers, as trouble causers. Where I grew up in, in Zimbabwe was amongst a, a people group called the Huesa. And Huesa women were the, the backbone of the, the local economy. They were subsistence farmers. They toiled with the simplest of tools. They bore and raised children in poverty where they had to walk for miles to get water from a well or from a river. And where darkness signaled the end to the day. These women were excluded from much of traditional religious practice. But they responded readily to Christianity. Women in their 30s and 40s who had spent their lives illiterate, with no formal education, who had never traveled beyond their visible horizon, begged to be taught to read so that they could read the Bible for themselves. They told their friends and their family about what they were discovering. They prayed for them and over them. They spoke in tongues. They healed. They exorcised. They became women with a new confidence and a spiritual authority that had been denied them up until that point. But often this newfound faith came at a heavy price. And my Anasia, one of my, my mother's good friends, found her husband waiting for her when she got home one day from the women's group. He was hefting the heavy braided leather thongs that he used to hitch his oxen to the plough. When she refused to respond to his question, who is greater, Jesus Christ or me? He beat her so mercilessly that he blinded her in one eye. My parents were distraught at that. Have we done the wrong thing? 
Have we done the wrong thing in bringing Jesus to people if they're suffering in this way? Sometimes when someone becomes a Christian in Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East, it doesn't bring peace, but it brings trouble. And I want to remind us that the Christian life is is not a life that is meant to be easy or comfortable, but it is a life that is meant to be worthwhile. I once saw the track of a bleeding rabbit across the snow, said J.H. Jowett. That was Paul's track across Europe. Paul and Barnabas, they, they suffer for the sake of the gospel. They come to an end of their first journey and they turn around and they go back through the places where they've suffered and struggled to encourage the churches that they have started. And what do they say in, verse, in, in chapter 14, verse 22? They say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There was robust, clear teaching on suffering as being part of the normal Christian life, both for those who were planting churches and for the people that belonged to those churches. And sometimes I, I go to, to mission conferences. I, there's amazing posters. They show these faraway countries and dramatic scenery and crowds of people. There are speakers that talk with great excitement about the progress that has been made. There are eye-catching videos, fast-moving action, great graphics, telling amazing stories. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with all these things. But often something is missed out. The call to live for Christ is a call to suffer. Resistance is meant. And then finally and briefly reporting back. There's one part of the globe that has seen the fastest growth in Christian faith in the, in the last 1500 years. And that is the continent of Africa. Once marginal to Christianity 120 years ago and now central to Christianity. Around one million or so, a little less than one million, British Anglicans go to church every Sunday in the UK. Nineteen million Nigerians go to Anglican churches in Nigeria every Sunday. It's remarkable. And it was a wave of, of, of missionaries that were sent out during the Victorian era that, that began this, this amazing wave of church growth in, in Africa. And there's a history that's been written of the Victorian church. It was written by a man called Owen Chadwick. It's 1,200 pages long. It's a huge book. Very useful for keeping doors open and things like that. And he's written this, this magisterial tome, this huge book about the history of the Victorian church. And he does not mention one single missionary in the whole of his history of the Victorian church, not even in the indexes at the back. One of our Singaporean colleagues working in Cambodia, he, he flew back 
from Cambodia to join the, the week-long church camp to report back to the church after several years away. He had 20 minutes to report back in the whole week. All too often the church ignores those that it sent out in cross-cultural service. What about the church in Antioch? We see in verse 26 that Paul and Barnabas return to the community of God's people that had sent them out. The whole church gathers. Verse 27, they gathered the church together and the two men report all that they've done for God. No, no, that's not what it says. The two men report all that God had done through them and how God had opened the door of faith to a previously unreached group, the Gentiles. The door of faith had been opened and, praise God, would never be closed again. The whole church had sent these two out and the whole church is reported to and the whole story of those two years of hard work were told to the church. The church took their role of holding people accountable seriously. And it's just wonderful to see the engagement of the community of God's people in sending people out and the engagement in receiving them back again and hearing what they've been doing. Just look back briefly then at verse 36 of of chapter 13. As Paul preached, he said, For David, after he had served the purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep. I don't know what your plan is for your life. I don't know what the plan is for this church. Is it to collect things and make money and be comfortable? Make sure that everything is nice and safe and secure until the point that you die? Or is there something more? Yesterday I was, uh, I was on Orchard Road and I saw an ad on a, on a bus stop. Um, I can't remember what, I think it was um, L'Oreal or something like that, but it was a picture of, of Hebe Tien. Is that, have I pronounced that right? No, the, the Chinese, the, the Taiwanese Mando pop star? No? Seeing a lot of blank faces. Maybe I'm watching the wrong videos or something. <laughs> anyway, she's a 28-year-old uh, and uh, they had a quote from her. Signs of aging? Question mark. I've got it under control. You can have it under control too. I just just made me laugh. It was so funny. <laughs> Signs of aging. I've got it under control. You know what? Aging is not under our control. Mortality in every generation, no matter how hard the doctors work and how much you pay, it's going to be 100%. We have a limited time available to us here and now. How will we invest the time that we have left? Jim Elliott, a young, gifted athlete and academic, many of you will have heard of him. He went together with four friends to the jungles of South America to throw his life away, making contact with an ethnic group there. He did this in response to the call of Christ. 
He and his friends did make contact with the group and just hours afterwards they were brutally stabbed and speared to death. But Jim wrote in his diary before he died, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Although Jim died young, he served the purpose of God and his own generation and then he fell asleep. Where's the profit in gaining the whole world and losing our own souls? And if we turn to the end of the, the book of Acts, chapter 28, it just finishes in the middle of the sentence. Well, not quite in the middle of the sentence. Luke does put, well, they've, they've put a full stop in there for us. But it's just in the middle of the story. And I think that God did that intentionally because he wants each church and each age to write the next chapter of the book of Acts. What is our chapter going to be? It, will it be the cold scrawl of a, of a small social club caring only for its benefit and comfort? Or will it be a great drama written in letters of fire of our willingness to partner with God and letting those in our family, in our workplace, our country, in our world know of the great and glorious news of the forgiveness of sin and newness of life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it continues to speak to us. We thank you for the picture that Lucas has painted for us of this remarkable church. We thank you for the way that they were willing to, to reach out cross-culturally. We recognize that they did that in, in partnership with and in response to and in obedience to you. And Lord, we recognize that that obedience came at a price, but it was a price worth paying. That life may not have been easy, but it was worthwhile. And Lord, we thank you for the way that that early church looked after Paul and Barnabas, the way they welcomed them back, heard what they had to say, and encouraged and refreshed them. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be obedient in the same way today. In Jesus' name, Amen.